Pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray even now that we may rest in the provision of your wisdom, of your word, and I pray that we would rest in it, that it would be that which is in one sense challenging, but in the other sense, since it comes from you, we know that we may sink deep in it and not fear, but rather be filled with joy, hope in you. So, Father, do that in us by your word, by its grace and power. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to 1 Peter in chapter 3. I want to read verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of God. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the weaving of gold, or the putting on of clothes, clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their, their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This passage, obviously, is about marriage, verses 1 through 6. Discuss wives, verse 7. Husbands, I will divide it up in that way for two sermons, really, if I can survive that. And preach about husbands uh, next time. But one through six, primarily today, uh, concerning wives. There probably is, I don't know how many passages in Scripture would be as counter-cultural to us, uh, not only in our country, but even in the church uh, in these days, perhaps, than this one. It talks about wives being submissive to husbands. It speaks of internal rather than external beauty. We spend a great deal of time in our country on that which is external uh, beauty. I I see a tremendous number of makeover shows. I don't see them, actually. I hear of them. (laughs) I see very few make-inner shows where we're concerned about our character. If we spent as much time working on the inside as we do the outside each day, I suspect... Life would be better, but there is a sense in which we really don't believe that real beauty is inner, that we really clearly the external, so we think it all resides there. So this is rather countercultural. We're speaking of people who are gentle and quiet, that is meek, those who do not assert their own way, uh, uh, demand their own rights, which is not very popular. In our culture, we have the interesting expression that Sarah called her husband Lord. Before you get too nervous, that's a small L. We're told not to fear anything that's frightening. At least that's the way this particular version very literally translates that expression. 
and wives are referred relative to their husbands as weaker vessels. Now, I don't know if any of our presidential candidates, if they stood up and said they believed all this, if that wouldn't be the talk of the town and the country and all the calling shows for quite some time because this simply isn't something that makes the public discourse very often nor even the church discourse very often. So you may wonder why I'm preaching it. Well, of course, first and foremost, because it's next we finished verse 25, chapter 2 last week, so now we're on to this. But it isn't unusual in the context of the Bible to read that wives are to be submissive to their husbands. Uh, and even Peter makes the most difficult of cases, as he has been throughout this entire progression of how we're to live. He speaks of us being submissive to civil authorities, even implying those which are unjust. He, he tells us that slaves, that they're to submit to masters, even those who are unjust. And now he speaks of wives being submissive to husbands, even those who disobey the word, and those who are unbelievers, clearly. But not only that, but those who, who seem not to be interested in even hearing about it, not being respectful even of the standards, the ways of God. And so a woman in that situation, a wife in that situation still, he says, is to be submissive uh, to her husband. And so it isn't unusual for the scripture to speak to that. And, and while, and I'll speak to wives being married, women being married to unbelieving husbands in some regard, but I don't want us to think that that's all this passage is about, or even primarily. It's simply just a special application of that. Notice he says in verse 1, Likewise, wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. But this is really a general statement to all wives, to be submissive to your own husbands. Uh, Paul speaks of it uh, very uh, straightforwardly uh, as well in Colossians um, in chapter 3 um, and verse let me find it in this version um, verse 18 wives submit to your, own, to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord um, the great passage in Ephesians in chapter 5 beginning with verse uh, 22 where the apostles write, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, uh, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we're all members of his body, therefore a man should leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So significant, so important is the relationship between husbands and wives, especially in the context of how they relate to one another as in submission and headship, that it actually models or mirrors the relationship between Christ and the church. It isn't something that's cultural. It isn't something that's optional. It's something that's ingrained in who we are and who we're to be. And so it's, it's not an unusual thing for us to think these things through. Uh, in fact, if you go all the way back, I think at least in the beginning to Genesis, you find as God creates men and women, brings them together to be one flesh, he has all of this in mind, this relationship of headship and, and submission. For instance, in Genesis in chapter 1, in verse 26, we read this, 
Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing. So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Uh, so even as the scripture lays this out, there's this sense of headship because the word man is used to cover them both, to describe both men and women. That's why we have the word mankind. It isn't to slight women at all. It's just simply that this is how God has created men and women, husbands and wives, a man to be head, woman to be submissive. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, if you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 1, we have this great creation hymn, this great creation um, praise really on the glory and the greatness of God. And, and in chapter 2 then we have this uh, narrative account that the details some of what we get in Genesis chapter 1 about creation, especially the creation of human beings. And we find that God first made Adam uh, and he put him in the garden, you'll notice in chapter 2 and verse 15. And it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so God gives to Adam, before Eve was created, this mandate of what he's to do, and he gives him this, this, this command of how he's to take care of the garden and watch it, and he gives him the, the probation test that you're not to eat of this one tree, and if you do, you'll surely die. So Adam receives that. Then verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And so Eve was to come along, the woman was to come along to be a helper for him. He was to live to guard the garden, he was to live to glorify God in that way, and she was to come along and to help him in that, in that pursuit. Um, God then brings all the animals in front of uh, Adam to convince him that there's no suitable helper for him. I think that would have been an easy sell. Uh, elephant? Nah. Giraffe? No. So I think at the end of that pursuit, he names all the animals, which is his uh, position as the head of the garden, and then God from him creates Eve. Notice, as you know, verse 21. So the Lord God caused, it, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed, uh, closed uh, up its place. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made to a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so she comes to help him. And he names her again, woman. And not very creative at that point. But verse 24, therefore a man should leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two would become one flesh. And the man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. That is, there was nothing really between them. Everything fit perfectly. Everything was the way it was to be. Here he was called to be head. He had the command of God. She come to help him in the context of the garden to take dominion and to rule together. He is head. She is helper. And then you remember the next chapter, Satan comes into the scene. And when he does, doing always what he does, and that is to pervert God's way. And so rather than go to the head of the garden, he goes to the helper. He goes to Eve. And he comes to her and he said, God, did God really say that if you eat of this tree, you will surely die? And you know, she eats, and then Adam in sin follows her as well. But as we read throughout the scripture, we always find this sin, this sin called the sin of Adam, not the sin of Eve, for he was the head. He was the one who bore the ultimate responsibility because he is the one to whom God had given the command. He was the one who was created first. He was the one who was to take care of the garden, she to be his helper. Thus, it was known as the sin of Adam. 
And then when the curse comes, and they're cursed, and they have to live under this curse to be redeemed from it. Uh, in verse 16 of chapter 3 in the middle, God says to the woman, you shall, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And so you see there's a perversion there in their relationship that she will desire her husband's position. And he will rule rather than love her. And so, as Christ comes, he redeems this beautiful relationship that God had initially established as he redeems all things. And now we're called to image the relationship between Christ and the church as wives in love submit to their husbands and husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church. So here we have Peter just simply echoing that as well. He should likewise, he says, wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So they're to submit. Now I want to say before I get, I'm already well into this, but before I get into this, a couple of things. Because marriage is a wonderful institution by God and also a very difficult thing. Uh, marriage can be wonderful and joyful, and yet it can be hurtful as well. There are many who have been hurt in the context of marriage. I understand that. I know that. So as we come to this, I want to make a few statements so that you can hear what Peter um, is about to say and is saying to us. First of all, when we think about this whole idea, the special application of women being married to unbelievers, we have to understand that that's not to be the norm, women being married to unbelieving husbands. It happens. It happens in Peter's day. It happens in our day. It happens in a variety of ways. Most innocently, it happens because a man and a woman get married and they're not, they're not Christians. And then after a while, the woman becomes a Christian. It happens the other way, too. A man becomes a Christian and his wife doesn't. Peter's speaking to the situation where the wife has become a Christian, but her husband hasn't. And that becomes a difficult situation because here you have a woman who loves Christ and a woman who's concerned about the soul of her husband and that creates great distress. And then if you have a husband who's disobedient to the word and doesn't respect it and doesn't want to hear it, how is the wife to live in that kind of a context? That's really the special case here. That's really the most difficult case that Peter says. But he says she's still to be submissive and so we have to ask the question how. But, but just to know that. There are other situations though in which um, unbelieving husbands are married to believing wives. One is as well, it may well be that women marry men who, th and they think the man is a believer. He gave every indication before they were married, just like guys do sometimes, in order to get a date and then in order to get married and so forth. And it may not even be conscious. It may be relatively sincere, but they wake up one day in year three and he realizes, I just don't believe this. And so it begins, he stops attending church with her, then he stops being interested in spiritual things, he may respect it and be nice and all that, but then she finds herself in a position of being married to an unbeliever, and it's distressing. It could happen that a woman marries an unbeliever, a Christian woman marries an unbeliever, and she knew that he was an unbeliever but when they got married, but she just was never taught that she ought not do that and didn't have people around her to help her with the discipline of that. And so there she is, it could well be that she married an unbelieving man knowing that he was an unbelieving man and was rebelling against God and knew it, from which she must, should repent of her sin, confess to God and to receive 
that forgiveness. But, but you understand the logic here. The logic here is that if you're going to be joined with someone, as intimately as a husband and wife are joined to be one flesh, then it can only reasonably be if you're a believer with another Christian. Paul speaks of this, I think, in the context first of worship, but yet very easily applied to marriage. For instance, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, in verse 14, the apostle writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols, for we're the temple of the living God? And so you see the logic there. The logic being that he says you can't worship with an unbeliever. You can't be joined together in worship with an unbeliever. So how could we think we would make the application? One could be joined together with an unbeliever in marriage, so intimate. Again, it happens, and we see the reasons it happens. You may be a person to whom it has happened, and, and you may have been a party to that, but this is simply what has taken place. Uh, the Old Testament is filled with God telling the Israelites, don't marry outside of Israel. And that isn't because God was against interracial marriage. It was, against, he was, he, it was that he was against interfaith marriage. It wasn't that they were of a different race. It was that they didn't follow God. And that was the way to distinguish those who did and those who didn't. And so the point being, Mary, in the faith. And I say that first and foremost because it's important to us as believers. If you're not married now, make it a distinct I don't know what word I could use to be as serious as it needs to be. Simply deny yourself the right to marry an unbeliever. Just say, no, it simply can't happen. Now, when you say that, you have to watch your romantic inclinations. You have to watch who you date. I would say, are you not ever to date an unbeliever? Because you can fall in love with an unbeliever. They're nice people. You know, they don't come horrible. They're just pretty nice. Sometimes some of them are nicer than some of the Christian guys you date. Some of them may treat you better than some of the Christian guys you date. So don't marry those Christian guys either. But, but I mean, this is a Christian. I mean, you know, that doesn't mean, well, I got to marry him now. I met a Christian. No. I mean, more discerning than that. I got a list, by the way. Um, the guys don't know they're on it, but they're on it. I have a list I'd like to give out. But... Um, Don't marry an unbeliever. Parents, instruct your children not to marry unbelievers. Not because unbelievers are horrible, but because that's simply not what will make a marriage. That's not according to God's wisdom. Supervise their lives. Make sure they understand that. I, I, my children know I couldn't give my blessing if my children are Christians, and they are. I believe it, to marry an unbeliever. I got a phone call hmm, a number of months ago from a young woman I hadn't seen in years. She was a little kid in the church that I pastored in Colorado. And she called me and told me who she was. And at first I had to even think who she was. And then I go, okay, got it. And she says, I'm getting married. And she said, ever since I was a little girl, I was watching you preach. And I would say, I want him to do my wedding. Now, if you ever want to get anything out of me at all, send your children. <laughs> all right? You need to know that. I just, 
I have absolutely no I have control with my children, but no, not yours. And so, um, I'm not so good with my own. I very often when they ask me things, but um, there's something about that little word daddy that kind of just <laughs> destroys you. But um, most manipulative word in the English language. Um, but she said, I want you to do my wedding. And I said, you know, I said, I'm thinking, no, I never traveled to weddings, da 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 but I'm thinking, how can I make this happen? So I, I talked to her, and I, I said, well, tell me about the guy. Tell me, when did he become a Christian? And she said, he isn't. And my heart just broke. I said, I can't do it. Because if we simply couldn't bless that relationship, now, having said all that, I want to say this. If you're here and you're married to a man who's an unbeliever, or a man married to an unbelieving woman, there may be a certain measure of guilt that you feel in that context. Peter isn't writing, nor am I preaching, to make you feel guilty. If you're in that situation because you've sinned, repent of your sin, confess it. Receive God's forgiveness and get on with life. Now, it's easier said than done, I understand, but that's the direction to head. You say, well, I've done all that, but I still feel guilty. Well, it may not be guilt you feel. If it is guilt you feel, you need to deal with God some more about this and get some help and so forth. And, but it may simply be the sorrow of a sinful decision. Those two things are different. It's different living in guilt and living in sorrow. I, I think, as Peter writes, I, I don't think he ever got over the sorrow of having denied Jesus, even though he knew he was forgiven. But I think when he thought back upon that, he would, he would just pause and he could feel the sorrow about that. When Paul writes about having persecuted Christians, I don't think he's writing about that cavalierly or flippantly or like that was just another life. I think he still feels the sorrow from having lived that life. But he doesn't have to live in the guilt of it. But, but we know that. We look back in the context of our own lives. And there are things that, that I wish still to this day I hadn't done, things that I had said, things that... And while I know I've been forgiven for those things, still, they're still part of what makes me up. And so remember that. Distinguish the two. But you may be thinking, sitting in this congregation, thinking everybody knows my husband's an unbeliever. Everybody knows my wife's an unbeliever. And you may be thinking, oh, what are they thinking of me? Trust me, they're not thinking of you. First, they're thinking of themselves. We're Americans. Secondly, (laughs) we don't call ourselves grace flippantly. We desire to be a community of grace. And by that, we understand first and foremost that we are individuals, we are people who've received grace upon grace from God. And thus, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, it isn't ours to be judgmental, lest that's turned upon us. But we've received grace, thus we give grace, we live in it. And we need to hear that so that we can be free to really hear the word, so we can be free to listen, so we don't have to repulse against it, that it doesn't cut so harshly that we don't want to hear it. So if that's your condition, receive the grace of God, receive the forgiveness of God. Don't worry about everyone else. Trust me, everyone's worried enough about themselves. They're not worried about you. Just relax and receive the grace of God. And also it's important to note, just again by way of introduction, we won't finish till about 10 after, uh, 
that if you're in that situation of being married to an unbeliever, that the way to solve the problem isn't divorce. For instance, 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, in verse 12, Paul writes, to the rest I say, that is to those who, um, he was just talking about Christians married to Christians, and so saying now to everybody else, I'm saying this, I not the Lord, I don't have time to deal with that, it simply means that Jesus hadn't turned him this specifically, probably he had told him the other stuff, he had heard it from others that Jesus had said, but Jesus didn't make this particular comment, but it's still from him. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he, she should not divorce him. If the unbelieving husband is made holy, this is just an amazing statement, if the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. Now, we don't necessarily believe, well, we don't believe that, that because an unbeliever is married to a believer, that that spouse then is holy in the sense of being a Christian, being saved. But yet in some sense, I don't know how to define it exactly, quite frankly, but some sense God looks upon that person as different because they're attached to the believer. And the same is true of the children in that marriage. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. He says, listen, so if the unbelieving spouse leaves, well, they leave. And there's not a whole lot you can do about that. And so there you are. So you're free. But you aren't to initiate that as the believing spouse. Verse 16, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? And that's part of Peter's point as well. All right, are we okay? Everybody on the same page? Good. Now I'll start my sermon. Um, I never preach too long. I always just get started a little late. That's always the problem. <laughs> that wasn't the problem. Um, now, the question then, all right, what does it mean to be submissive? What are we talking about, about a wife being submissive to her husband? Let me do two things. First, tell you what it doesn't mean and then give you a bit about what it does mean. Number one, when we talk about a wife being submissive to her husband, we certainly do mean the same thing we've met about submission all along. It simply means to come under the authority of another. Not too much you can do with language. It's what the word means, sub, under, mission, sent, one sent, under, uh, in English at least. And so uh, it's, it's to be submissive, to respect the authority of your husband, this God-given authority of your husband. But it doesn't mean that your husband's will takes the place of Christ's will. When Sarah called Abraham Lord, it was indeed with a little L. It was a show of respect. It wasn't a show of sovereignty. Okay, big L is sovereignty. Little L is respect. When, Ab when Sarah called Abraham Lord, it was rather like some children, especially reared in the South, referred to their father as Sir. It sounds rather formal. It sounds rather put offish, but in that culture, it's simply a show of respect and love. There's still intimacy of a father and son. It's simply the word is sir that the father is addressed by. And here it was Lord, a sign of respect. She understood that he was head and she was submissive to him. I'll get a bit with Sarah in a minute. but So it doesn't mean that God's will, that her husband's will, replaces God's will. She's still to follow him. And obviously she is. He's an unbeliever. She's a believer. 
If he came to her and said, don't believe, she'd say no. Because she's a believer in Christ. And so that's that case. Secondly, it doesn't mean that she gives up independent thought. She's to be his helper. How can she give up her independent thought, her own thinking, her own mind, that God has given to her and still be his helper? Uh, the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding made popular an expression I'd been using for years and should have put in a movie. Uh, and that is, if I'm the head, Karen's the neck. And so that's the place of a wife, is to move her husband's head very often to see <laughs> what he would not. They were puppets, that's probably a bad image. Uh, but to be able to see that which he might not see, that's being a helper. If your husband's about to fall off a cliff, say, excuse me, honey, there's a cliff, that's okay. That's good to do. You're there to help him, to let him see that which he would not otherwise have seen. That's why there's two and not just one. That's why there's different personalities. That's why there's different thinking. And so she isn't to give up her thinking or independent mind. Um, she's to be a thinker. Thirdly, uh, she's not to give up efforts to influence him. In fact, Peter's hoping that her life influences him all the way to heaven. That she lives in such a way that influences him to come to faith in Christ. So it isn't that she says, well, I can't influence his decisions here. I can't influence his way. How else are you going to help him if you're not influencing him, if you're not working in such a way as will provide help to him in this way of influence? So that isn't it either. Um, uh, she must, it doesn't mean that she has to give in to every demand of her husband. If there are sinful demands that the husband makes, of course she would not give in to those. It doesn't mean that she has to suffer physical abuse, if that's the harshness with which he gives to her. She can flee for a reasonable safety, obviously. It isn't that she's not to give her opinion. She's to be his helper. Uh, it isn't that she will find her spiritual strength from him and him alone. In fact, in this case, a woman married to an unbeliever, it's impossible probably for her to receive spiritual strength from him. In fact, she used to live in such a way that she receives spiritual strength for him. And so still Christ is her source of spiritual strength. It doesn't mean that she's less intelligent or competent. It doesn't have anything at all to do with that. Obviously she has spiritual discernment. He doesn't have. She's a believer in Christ. He is not. And so it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence or competence. It does, it's not inconsistent with the two being equal, completely equal as human beings, completely equal as human beings before God. Because the model of this relationship is the Trinity itself. Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at one point are utterly equal with each other. Each, all the attributes of God. But yet, the Son submitted himself to the Father. The Spirit submits himself to the Father and the Son. Equal, yet in the context of their relationship, one submissive to the other. You see, when Peter says that the wife is the weaker vessel, it doesn't mean that she's less competent. It doesn't mean that she's less strong. It simply means that positionally she's in a different place. That he's the one to submit. He's the one to be in authority. And so he says to the husband, don't use this position of headship of authority to dishonor your wife. 
She's the weaker vessel. God has put her in this place where she is to submit to you. Don't take advantage of that, but rather use that as a way to honor her. So that's what, in a sense, submission isn't. What it is is this. Let me give you a couple of definitions. One by a theologian named Wayne Grudem. He writes this. He said, submission is an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband. It's an inner quality of gentleness or meekness that affirms the leadership of her husband. John Piper, pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, puts it this way. He says, submission is the disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It's an attitude that says, I delight you for you to take the initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. But it also says, it grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and want to take me with you. You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond creatively and joyfully to your lead but I can't follow you into sin as much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage because Christ is my king. Now you may say, why is it that Peter says that wives are being submissive to their husbands? Okay, that's fine. But why does he use this category of women who are married to unbelieving husbands? Why does he bring that out? Well, of course, because that's the difficult case. It's one thing, for instance, to tell slaves to be submissive to their good master. It's another thing to say, slaves, be submissive to your unjust master. And so now he comes to the wife and he says, be submissive to your husbands. Well, that's good. But then wives also be submissive to your unbelieving husbands. Why is that? Because God's wisdom is God's wisdom. Because God's rightness is God's rightness. Because even in difficult circumstances, we're to follow his wisdom. And just because we're in a circumstance that would make it sort of temporarily easier for us to avoid difficulty, no, we still need to follow after God, even though it might be a hard place, even though it might be a difficult place. Because you see, the goal of life is that we would declare how great he is. And so he's saying to these wives, where... Where else can you declare how great he is other than in this situation where you're married to a person who doesn't respect your faith and you continue to live by faith and he sees the beauty of it? Ah, that declares the excellencies of God. I must confess that some of my greatest heroes are women who are married to unbelieving husbands who continue to persevere because they often feel like they're shriveling up. And yet, the beauty that's coming from them is tremendous. And we only pray that their husbands can see it. Because you see, the way that all wives live to be submissive to their husbands is to be like Sarah, the illustration here. Notice verse 3. Peter says, Do not let <clears throat> your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. He isn't saying that you can't braid your hair, wear gold, or clothes. But he's saying, don't get hung up there. Don't, don't let that be what you think will win your husband. Don't, let you, don't, let, don't think that, that that's what's going to, to show off the excellencies of God, this external beauty. So don't get hung up there. So, but rather, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle 
and quiet spirit of meekness, is the biblical word, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You see, the way that Sarah adorned herself, and Sarah is such an interesting example to use here, because quite frankly, she had her moments. Sarah had issues. I mean, you know, she was the one who said to Abraham, take my servant girl, we need a baby. And then after he did that, she got all mad at everybody. She was the one that when she overheard the word that she, this old woman, was going to give birth to a child, having been fathered by that old man, she laughed. It was probably a rather hilarious sort of sight. But then God rebuked her and said, is there anything really too hard for me? And you get the sense, of so the text doesn't say, you get the sense it's implied, you get the sense that at that point, faith grew in her to the point where she received all that God had had for her. In fact, the author of Hebrews singles her out in Hebrews 11, verse 11, and says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. See, that's the hope in God. That's the same hope in God that Jesus had in the Father when the Scripture said, when Peter said he entrusted himself continually to him who judges justly. That's the hope. So this is God's way. So this will be good. This is God's way, so this will work. This is God's way. This will be a blessing, ultimately, to me. Thus, those who hope in God, you see, are those who are meek. Because meek doesn't mean weak. It means you're powerful. Because this is a person who isn't afraid of things that are frightening. A powerful person, but that power under control. Watching the Olympics the last couple of weeks, Meekness was all over the place, especially in swimming. It's in track and field, but, I, but, I, but I, I really saw it in swimming because on some of the longer swims, I guess you call them, uh, pardon me, all you swimming people, uh, on some of the longer races, uh, I would hear the commentators say, if he or she goes out too quickly, they'll lose. And you had this sense that pent up in that first lap, the second lap, that there was all this power just ready to be unleashed. But there had to be great faith, great hope in the coach, in the strategy of the race, to say, trust me here. Don't let it all out right now. Trust me here. Don't go as fast as you possibly can go. Be controlled. Be disciplined. That's meekness. It's power controlled. Only to be let go at the right moment in time. And then so many races, race after race, especially with the Americans, I was probably watching them most closely. But as they would go and they say, oh, they're holding back, they're holding back, and then boom, in that last deal, there they went. Because they hoped in what was right. And so they hoped in God. We're to hope in God. Because you see, meekness isn't just this quietness and gentleness of spirit. It isn't just simply something that's to be true of women, wives who are married, or married even to unbelieving husbands. It's to be true of everybody. It was true of Jesus. He said, come to me, all you are uh, burdened and, and, and weary, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am meek. I have great power, but I don't zap you. I give you rest. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, 
or they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you who hope in me, because when you hope in me, you don't have to fear anything. When you hope in me, you don't have to worry about anything. When you hope in me, then you're free to obey me. You're free to follow me. And it may be difficult steps, but you're still free to follow me. Why? Because you hope in me and you believe in my word. And you're saying, yes, that's going to be true. And yes, there's an outcome to this. And I'm going to be precious in the sight. I'm going to be precious in the sight of God. And thus, you see, that's how it is that wives, competent, bright, strong, equal to their husbands, then say, I'll follow God's way in the context of my marriage. And I will submit on good days and bad. And I will be that helper to my husband that God has called me to be. And that, you see, is a person who lives without fear. This last expression, the end of verse 6. If you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. That's a very literal translation. I forget how the NIV puts it. Because there are frightening things in the context of life. And there are frightening things in the context of marriage. And there are frightening things if you're a woman married even to a good Christian husband. Because you feel that God has kind of put you in this submissive place. And you're thinking, can I trust him? And God says, no, you can't trust him. Trust me. (laughs) Tell my wife all the time. She says, well, I trust you. I said, well, that's a problem. I appreciate sort of that, but that's a problem. Uh, Bump up. (laughs) Don't trust me. I don't trust me. Uh, But if this is the way God has established this, and this is the way we're going to go, let's work on this, and let's let's talk about this, give us all, let's think through this the best we possibly can. And then I realize in certain situations that I'm responsible for this decision or this direction or to set the tone or whatever that is. And so, so and if I'm a wife, I'm going... I'd rather be in control here. And especially if you're married to an unbelieving husband. That can be frightening. But a woman who hopes in God isn't frightened by what is frightening. Why? But you see, that's true for all Christians. Life is frightening. It's bigger than the rest of us. I mean, it's frightening enough to get the weather channel and be watching what's coming in. And you realize it's me in the basement and that... So we hope in God. So we don't have to be afraid of that which is in fact frightening. We hope in God. See, that's simply the point, isn't it? That's the basis of the Christian life. It applies to us as we relate to government. It applies to us as we relate to employers. It relates to us as we relate women as they relate to their husbands. It relates to children as they relate to their parents. What are you going to put your hope And if it isn't in God, if it's in your external beauty, you know as well as I do, no matter how good you are at whatever it is that you do to make yourself look nice, one day you're going to look in the mirror and go, that's my dad. (laughs) That's my mom. Or, whoa, what happened? You know, it's just going to happen. We always sit around the premarital class and tell the, 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 the couples, don't get married because of the way you're looking, because at 50, everybody looks like this. And they go, oh! Do we have to live that long? (laughs) No, no, no. Don't put your hope there. And and see, if I gave you a multiple choice test and I said, should you put your hope in that which is external? You don't say no. But let's get real. 
Father in heaven, I pray for us, pray for me, that we wouldn't be confused and deceived really by thinking there's anyone, anything other than you we can hope in, so I pray. I pray most especially today just because of the text in which we find ourselves for women, for wives, that the wives married women in our congregation would hope in you and follow you and father the art of being a submissive wife could be taken not with a sense of burden but a sense of delight knowing that this is your way and I pray that the women and the wives in our church can take it in such a way it would be a blessing to you it would be precious because they hope in you. And Father, for all of us, that each would hope in you and no one, nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen.